You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 9th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello there and a warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, Ukraine's defence chief is fired by the president and his replacement announced. We'll ask whether this draws a line under tensions at the top of the country's military operations. Also ahead, we look ahead to this weekend's presidential elections in Finland, where it's a runoff between two similar strong international figures. And speaking of strong international figures, I'll be joined in the studio by our Senior news editor Chris Chermak, who brings us a roundup of the latest headlines in the U- US. Chris. <laughs> Plenty to talk about, Emma. Joe Biden's memory lapses, Donald Trump's eligibility to run for office, Tucker Carlson, and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's visit to Washington, D.C. Thank you, Chris. And. Leonard Bernstein was a big inspiration when I just started makeup. We meet the Oscar-winning makeup designer behind Bradley Cooper's transformation in Maestro. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Could the departure of Ukraine's defence chief put an end to deep divisions between the president and the country's military? For some months, Volodymyr Zelensky and General Valery Zeluzhny, who'd led the fight against Russia since the invasion almost two years ago, appeared to be taking very different views on how the war was going. And what's worse, this was being done in public. Now Zeluzhny's gone, replaced yesterday by Oleksandr Sierski, who's a political ally of the president. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined on the line by Natalia Gumenyuk at Ukraine. Ukrainian journalist and regular voice on Monocle Radio. Good afternoon, Natalia. Good afternoon. So this division between Zelensky and Zeluzhny had been brewing for quite a long time and they'd been publicly taking different views, hadn't they? Um, so this division, and I wouldn't say this division, but like the yeah, different approach was there for quite a long time. And to be honest, the public knows very little compared to how it was because there was a huge effort made like to make it as smooth as possible it's more or less like how it feels now that you know like you have your parents divorcing and you like both of them and you don't want it happen but they can't make it any longer so you really like want to delay this moment but it should be sorted out yet i should say it's not really just about the division between the president and the military because alexander sirsky who is a new who would be the replacement as a commander in chief he is you know like one of the top military as well so there were also you know different views inside the military how it should be done of course the general delusion is extremely likable humane laid back easy going kind of younger person. Sirsky is known for being very, very tough, very ruthless, at least in his communication, not that outspoken, so kind of less likable. But also he has a credit for a huge operation on the liberation of Kiev and the liberation of Kharkiv. Uh, so the concern was always how it would end, you know, when would be this uh, and what would be the reaction of the Ukrainian public to firing somebody as likable and as popular as Zelushny. And what has been the reaction? 
it's interesting. Uh, there are people who are crying. There are people who, you know, doing jokes and memes. But in fact, it's rather, you know, um, okay, to be honest. There were a lot of, like, thankful notes to the general commander, Zaluzhny, but also some good luck to Alexander Sirsky, because we also should understand it's a difficult moment, because it's true that for the last, like, there is a real issue in the army. The issue is about the rotation. It's about the military mobilization. It's about catching up with the technological uh, advance of the army because for a while Ukraine has some kind of modern way to fight like for instance drones and then within the last year Russia caught up. So there are, uh, the, 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 there are things to change but I think we, people, the, the, expect, and the concern was would it be really political? You know, at least, you know, we, we're observing a lot of, uh, you know, reactions on the media everywhere, everywhere. Uh, there are people who are very disappointed. There are people who don't understand why it's why. There are people who are regretting. But it's still like, it's okay. I think people are even more concerned about how the Western public would get it, how the Western media would get it. Uh, because in the end, uh, you know, like the, the war is there and it's still like the change within the system. Um, Vladimir Zelensky talked, as he did a televised address yesterday, about a need for an update in terms of the way that the the Ukrainian military strategy uh, has to to be. Uh, What did he mean by that? So that's exactly about the military drill. It's about the rotation uh, because there are people who are serving for the two years in a row already since the first uh, days of the war and they kind of demand to find the way how they can be replaced, how could be a different approach for the training, but also knowing that there would be the less, uh, you know, that there is a, clearly a, a lack of the ammunition, that how do you fight in a way that, you know, you probably just can't rely on 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 uh, enough of ammunition. It's, it's not good. The task for the state is to get this ammunition. It's really, um, you know, existential. Still, the idea is like, can you come up with other ideas how to fight, how to contain and preserve the front line so the Russians won't be able to overtake like any town or something? And and, and, and these are the things. But it's also a, a lot about the reform inside the army, which is like a, a one million people, how to make it more efficient with an idea that there are you know, like there is limited resources. Uh, so you mentioned a moment ago about his, the successor, Alexander Sersky. Um He's been commander of the Ukrainian ground forces for 11 years now, and he's been involved very much in the way that the Ukrainian army's effort is, has been trying to adopt NATO standards. Um, what difference will we see and will Ukraine see in terms of the direction of the, the military operation against Russia? Uh, so he's considered to be a really great military strategist. You know, a lot of people give him the credit for the operation of the liberation. But he is disliked by some people in the military. And oddly enough, in Ukraine, you know, military speak openly. Everybody has an opinion and speak to the media or wherever. Uh, that he's kind of ruthless, that he wants to send the soldiers, you know, with, uh, you know, like risking uh, too many lives. But he is like very organized. And the idea is that maybe there would be more like tough decisions made in the way the army fights. I really probably not the ones and I don't think anybody can really guess clearly what would be the direction. Because also, you know, Sirsky is in his like 
short address on 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 the media which he has like issued it's it's rather than general it's it's really about like this efficiency strategy uh, you know so we would have like more maybe kind of more less outspoken head of general staff and we probably you know more uh, reserved Finally, um, President Vladimir Putin of Russia did an interview with Tucker Carlson yesterday. Um, we'll be talking about that in a, in, in a little while when Chris Chermak joins us to talk about how the Americans have, have taken this. But how have the Ukrainians received this interview? Because he was very publicly saying that the West needs to realise that Ukraine won't win the war. Uh, so I think that for Ukraine, they are observing Tucker Carlson for quite a some time. Not everybody, but it's important to understand that Tucker Carlson programs are translated into Russian and very popular inside of Russia. You know, more or less like the saying that, like, yeah, there are people in the West who really say what we what what we want to say. So he's seen here like a Russian propagandist. You know, we have the cases with Oliver Stone traveled to Vladimir Putin to make a film about occupation of Crimea and for ye- for hours would be listening the lies. Uh, the talk, uh, it's amusing. Some people kind of need to find the strength and emotions and resilience to watch this because mainly he was speaking about factually wrong his historical views on how Ukraine has been created. All about middle, you know, like 9th century, 14th century, something like election history, which is extremely similar to what he said uh, during, you know, the night before the full-scale uh, invasion, you know, or he just more or less repeated everything, everything. So, of course, the concern is how some of the voters in the U.S., including how of the public who supportive of Tucker Carlson, whether they would buy it whether they would buy this kind of justification of uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, by this historic narrative. Uh, so that's probably for Americans to say, but I, 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 I think that the, the essence of this talk, maybe a kind of Ukrainians are like really uh, not taking that too seriously because they maybe expected that there would be at least something new, but there was not much. There was really this purely boring historic lecture with a lot of flows and more or less imagined way how Vladimir Putin sees the history of the world. Natalia Gomenyuk, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Let's have a look now at the latest headlines. Here's Emma Sal. Votes are being counted in Pakistan after an election day marred by Islamist violence and the government's suspension of mobile phone services. Analysts have raised concerns about the credibility of the vote, which three-time former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif is expected to win. Israel has ramped up its strikes on Rafah in the southern Gaza Strip as its military prepares to launch an offensive into the city. The United States warned that it would not support any major operation in Rafah, which it said would be a disaster without proper planning. And farmers in Spain blocked city streets for a third day on Thursday in protest against rising costs, regulation and competition from outside the EU. The demonstrations follow weeks of similar protests across Europe, including in Germany, France and Belgium. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Emma Searle. Now, whoever wins this weekend's presidential election in Finland, well, there'll be some certainties. He will be pro-European, a globalist and a strong supporter of Ukraine. And he'll be taking his country into a new era of NATO membership as well. Well, to find out more, let's hear from Bruno Kaufmann, global democracy correspondent for the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation. He joins us on the line from Helsinki. A very good afternoon to you, Bruno. 
Yes, hello. Good to be. So Thank you've you. been you've been ranging far and wide in Finland, gathering opinions. So what's the atmosphere like? Yeah, the atmosphere is that this election is very important for the Finns. Already in the first round, the turnout was higher than for the last 30 years. So for the Finnish citizens independently who will be elected, it, this is an expression of showing that this is a strong and free democracy. Tell us a little bit more about the two candidates. We have two. We've already had uh, one round of elections, but we now have the former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb, sort of a legendary figure. Um, we also have Pekka Havisto as well, um, a former foreign minister. And as I mentioned in my introduction, there doesn't seem to be a tremendous difference between the two men and what they stand for. So, so what are Finns choosing between here? Yes, I mean, uh, they, they look very similar and they're very friendly to each another in the debate. So in a way, you would say that it's not really important who is elected. But still, if you look into the the, um, the life uh, uh, careers of these two uh, candidates, you see quite important differences. I mean, Alexander Stupe is really a, a conservative, uh, professional, political scientist with a lot of international experience, especially in Europe and also the US. I mean, he has been a prime minister, finance minister, trade minister. He has worked with the EU commission. He has been an academic leader. So he is very much, uh, you can say, at home in the EU, in NATO now, and also in the West with the US. While Pekka Havist on the other side, he has also a lot of international experience. I mean, he has been for the UN in peace missions around the world, in Sudan, in Afghanistan. But he is also much more an environmentalist. He has been, the, in fact, uh, historically the first green minister in a national government in Europe in 1995. And he has, in the recent years, been the one to lead uh, Finland into the NATO. And he has shown that he has a lot of experience in this field as well. So who are people expecting will win? I mean, it looks very much like Alexander Stubb will do it because in the first round, many of the other candidates who have uh, not been uh, gone to the second round, they are supporting Stubb. And you see also in the opinion polls that Stubb is uh, consistently over 50%, while Pekavisto is consistently under 50%. But still, of course, many of the votes, and this was the majority in the first round, didn't go to these two candidates. So uh, both candidates are now really running around the country, campaigning into the last minute, and maybe getting one of the votes who of the people who haven't decided yet. And especially you can also say that for many people, Stoop is a person who has been mainly abroad while Pekavisto has been as, at home. So Havisto hopes that people would maybe prefer him because he, he knows the country better than Stoop. And the importance of a high international profile is, is what at the moment? I mean, we, we have to look at the fact that... Um, Finland has just joined NATO, so that is important. But also, the president has a huge military role, doesn't he? That's right. I mean, the Finnish presidency is maybe one of the strongest presidencies in Europe. Uh, he's really also a, a moral leader of the of the nation, and he leads uh, the the country in all international organizations, which will become even more important now for uh, for uh, for Finland. I mean, it's interesting that this strong role of the presidency is mainly uh, linked to the relation to Russia, because after the Second World War, you can say that the Finnish president was really the 
the person to have and to keep contact with Moscow. And this was all the way until a couple of years ago when Russia started its war. It was the Finnish president who met the Russian president once a year, went to the sauna, had debates. And this is now over. Now it's a new role especially into the Western institutions. And here, this new president will have a huge role. And of course, also at this moment, there is real fear of military interference. I just heard, got a message that I will visit uh, the, the border uh, on Sunday and election day. But for the first time in all the years I've been in Finland, I will be, be not be allowed to come close to the border because the officials are afraid. Bruno Kaufman in Helsinki. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. Now let's hear from our senior news editor, Chris Chermak. He's joining me in the studio to have a look at what's happening in the United States. Very good afternoon to you, Chris. Good afternoon, Emma. Um, The last 24 hours have been quite an astonishing uh, time with the world spotlight looking at Joe Biden and his ability to mentally be fit for president. I was surprised by just how how far this has gone around the world. Well, absolutely. It really has traveled everywhere. And, and it was amazing how, how quickly it came, kind of out of the blue, because it started from this report from special counsel Robert Hur, who was just looking into whether Joe Biden had kept classified documents at his home and at his office from the time that he was vice president. So nobody necessarily expected this to be the report that would lead to these questions about Joe Biden's age and his memory lapses. But this report goes into extreme detail, which is quite striking, frankly, quite personal detail about Joe Biden in a way that you wouldn't expect from a report from a Justice Department special counsel. But it talks about, in part, and this was the key sort of phrase in this report, that it would be hard to try Joe Biden for his keeping of these documents because a jury would find Biden to be, quote, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. That's where all of this started. Said the, the court, the, this report basically saying it would be hard to prove willful intent. And Joe Biden then hastily arranged a press conference to respond to this. We have a little clip we can listen to from that. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad I let you speak. That's, you, uh, that's, you that's, that's your memory has gotten worse, Mr. No, president? My memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. It's incredible to, to hear questions like that. How bad is your memory, Mr. President, being held to the leader of the free world? I mean, one, whether his memory is good or not, it, it does diminish him, doesn't it? It makes him a very frail and vulnerable human occupying the most important job in the world. It does, in part just because of the fact that this is a conversation that has been going on in conservative media for a long time now. But this really brought it, as you say, onto the front pages globally. The left-leaning, any media basically was covering it at this point. So it really puts these questions of his memory and his age front and center. And it's going to be something that continues to dog him throughout this, this well, campaign year. Does it actually manifestly change things in terms of the, the, the re-election process, the possibilities for him? Well, that's a good question, but this has always been the central issue, if you will, for Joe Biden. So you could argue in some ways it doesn't change things. This was always a primary concern. 
Uh, many voters will talk about this. Anyone I spoke to in the U.S. will often raise this when it comes to Joe Biden and whether he is fit to run for office for a second term or not. Whether it really changes the outcome there, it, it just raises that question again. And it's something that the White House and Democrats do not want to talk about. Um Let's move on to uh, an, another gerontologist dream, uh, Donald <laughs> Trump. And this is an astonishing year, isn't it? Um, Donald Trump is in court again. Um, I'm not entirely sure how we sort of keep keep up with this thing. Uh, but it's the Supreme Court's hearing of uh, whether Donald Trump should be kept off the ballot, whether he is not eligible to stand, not because of his age, but because of uh, what happened on Capitol Hill. Yes, that's right. So this was one that Donald Trump himself did not have to appear at, but it was the Supreme Court hearing arguments in this case. And this is about Colorado basically kicking Donald Trump off of the ballot there, saying that he incited an insurrection on January 6th. It's always interesting looking at these cases when they're before the Supreme Court. Everyone kind of parses what the justices are saying, what kind of questions they are asking of the lawyers in order to get a sense of where their decision is going to go. And the general feeling looking at legal experts and the coverage of this from yesterday is that the court is leaning towards letting Donald Trump stay on the ballot. They question basically whether a state should have the right on its own. Um, to kick Donald Trump off a ballot for this. But then bizarrely also, there's sort of this general question of, well, if it's not a state, then who else would have the ability to kick him off? They're suggesting perhaps it is Congress. There would have to be a law passed by Congress in order to kind of back up what is in the Constitution when it comes to an insurrection, which is, of course, unlikely in the current state of affairs. And it brings up the whole idea of the, the reliability or the or the validity of the Constitution and the validity of, of, of America's courts. And Trump get, and, and Trump's mere existence raising major questions um, simply by the fact that the, the amount of trouble that has ensued since his presidency has really caused so much turmoil in terms of the, the assessment of the, of, you know, the great institutions of America's democracy. And it does raise a question about our fealty to the American Constitution, Emma, frankly, because if you look at the Constitution, this has often been one of the things that's quite surprising, right, that you do not... You, you, you can be eligible to run for office even if you have been convicted of a crime. This is one of the central aspects. All that it requires is that you are an American citizen and over 35 years of age. So that's where this comes from in a way that it's very hard to find anything in the Constitution that stops him from running. Other countries would have not allowed a convicted felon particularly to run for office. That could still happen in the U.S. Um, let's talk about uh, the interview that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, gave to Tucker Carlson. Um, two, in, two reactions that I've heard from this morning. One of them was from the head of, a former head of MI6, the, the, the spy agency of the UK, who basically said that Putin's interview was downright boring. Um, but also we heard from Natalia Gomenyuk a little bit earlier on, who, who raised the issue about who this interview was aimed at. Was it aimed at the Russians? But also, is it aimed at conservative Americans who are backers of Tucker Carlson, who may actually buy Putin's version of the invasion of Ukraine. Absolutely, that is that is certainly one of the aims you could imagine that it was that Vladimir Putin had for doing this interview with Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson has been quite outspoken in in sort of defending Vladimir Putin, saying he's getting a bad rap back in the United States. That said, when you look at the headlines in the U.S., I mean, there is a lot of coverage that really neither of them got what they wanted out of this. Tucker Carlson appeared quite weak in the interview because Putin kind of ran over him and just spoke over 
over him through a lot of this. Um, and at the same time, kind of to your point from the MI6, the interview itself didn't really bring much new out of Vladimir Putin either. That said, when you look at some of the headlines in the U.S., for example, look to the New York Post, uh, they do start with the fact that Putin says Bill Clinton told him Russia could join NATO before pulling back hours later. You tricked us, is what, by, what Putin said about the United States. So they are leaning into some of that argument um, about sort of Putin's argument about why he did this and what NATO, you know, the role that NATO has played in all of this as well. So that is something that could potentially certainly have an impact on some of those kind of more far-right groups in the United States that are paying attention to this. Finally, the German Chancellor is in Washington. Um, the discussion mainly is about Ukraine, isn't it? What what headway is Schultz helping to to gain there and, and actually what is Schultz's purpose? It is absolutely about Ukraine and Olaf Scholz met with US senators yesterday so that was quite interesting particularly because of the timing of this. The US Senate is debating a funding package for Ukraine and Israel for that matter at the very moment. We don't know exactly when a vote on that will take place so he was meeting with senators to try and convince him. He, he tweeted in English after that meeting saying good to talk with members of the US Senate. Ukraine needs all of our support in order to defend itself against Russia's aggression. He will also be meeting with Joe Biden today for about 60 minutes. So it, it will be a longer meeting. A lot of the focus is on Germany playing a big role in this. But of course, it needs, absolutely needs U.S. help as well for Ukraine to remain strong. Chris Chermak, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now mark your cards, everybody, because tomorrow marks the start of the Lunar New Year. This year, the world enters the so-called Year of the Dragon. And if you follow this kind of stuff, this is a big thing. As a result, prospective parents have been doing their utmost to make sure that their children are born under the dragon. The trouble is, so is everybody else. Well, journalist Erin Hale joins us from Taipei. Uh, A very good afternoon to you, Erin. Hi, thank you, and good evening. Good evening, Taipei. Good to have you with us. Um, first and foremost, what what animal are you? I'm a dragon. Excellent. So it's pretty exciting, yeah. So you speak from experience. Um, I'm married to a dragon, and my son is a dragon. So what's so special about you, Lord? <laughs> well, dragons in Chinese culture are a little bit different than in the West. Um, they're considered, you know, very wise, uh, very good luck. I think a term someone used was sagacious. And so being born in the year of the dragon is considered uh, very special because you're associated with that animal. And as a result, uh, being the only mythical character out of the, mm-hmm. out of the Chinese um, um, zodiac, if we can describe it as such, mm-hmm. means that everybody wants to have a dragon. Is that correct? So what does that mean for obviously the, 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 the procreation um, patterns of, mm-hmm. of humans in that part of the world? So this is a very interesting phenomenon, um, actually, uh, where you will see, uh, you can actually see it in in population graphs. So you'll see a big bump in babies um, anytime there's a year of the dragon. So I think a lot of governments in Asia are expecting it this year. If you go back, you can see, you know, 2000, 2012, 1988. But one demographer I spoke to in the U.S., uh, Daniel Goodkind, he found that actually, interestingly, this is actually a very new phenomenon. And it really actually only started in the 1970s. Uh, specifically, 1976 was this boom year for dragons. Of course, parents have always wanted dragon babies, but that was the first time they really saw this spike in 
spiking babies. And as a result, you end up with a sort of a, a bunching together of a lot of people growing up or being born in the same year. So what effect does that have on people's ability to get a good education, get a good job? Because if you have this sort of spike in population, there'll be unusual pressure points. Yeah, so it's very interesting. It can actually, you know, backfire slightly. Um, there was a study in Singapore by a group of economists and academics, and they found that, you know, being born in the year of the dragon had adverse effects on people. You know, it's more competitive to get into university. They actually, some of them showed, you know, lower earnings because getting a job was harder. It can affect your, um, you know, national service. I spoke to one man in Taiwan, born in 1976, and he ended up volunteering to be a paratrooper. Uh, you know, rather than get stationed on one of the outlying islands for two years because he knew that, you know, it was going to be that much tougher to get a good spot in the Taiwanese military. So it has, you know, has huge effects all down, you know, throughout the rest of your life. And when you're looking, however, the, the falling birth rates in China and an ageing population, however, does this, how much does being, you know, does this little spike in births actually contribute to, to redressing that imbal- imbalance? I think it will give it, you know, a nice little push. Sometimes it can be as much as, you know, 10% more birth than the year previously. But unfortunately, I think most experts would say it's not going to correct, um, you know, the overall downward trajectory. That's going to take, you know, a lot more things like, uh, say, government support for women, societal changes, acceptance of, you know, single parents, uh, IVF for non-married people. Uh, yeah, it'll take more than just a lucky zodiac sign, I think. Uh, finally, speaking of, of, of the luck level, which is the worst sign to be born under? Uh, a lot of people really um, really don't like the tiger. Um, I think it's supposed to be very fiery, you know, difficult to get along with. Patriarchal Asia, they don't really like tiger women. Um, so usually about two years before dragon, you'll see a slight decline in birth. Ah, that and this was... will make up for that. Yeah, guess what I am. Erin Hale <laughs> in Taipei, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Finally, on today's show, a very special behind-the-scenes look at the craftsmanship that goes into Hollywood makeup to create silver screen transformations. And with the BAFTAs around the corner, Monocle's Laura Kramer caught up with one of the nominees in the hair and makeup category. Two-time Academy Award winner Kazuhiro is a master of prosthetic makeup design, renowned for his work on biopics and movies based on true stories. His ability to morph stars into historical figures is so good, audiences have to squint to try to find any resemblance of the famous face they know so well and the character they play on screen. He won the Oscar for his work on the 2017 British war drama Darkest Hour, in which he turned Gary Oldman into Winston Churchill. You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth! And 2019's Bombshell, in which he morphed several people into well-known media figures, including Charlize Theron, who played the former Fox News talk show host Megyn Kelly. A hotline in this building is like a complaint box in occupied Paris. And now he's getting praise for yet another transformation, that of Bradley Cooper into the late great conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein in the Netflix drama Maestro, which Cooper also directed, and co-stars Carrie Mulligan, who plays his wife. Hello, I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Uh, Bernstein, like that one. Montalegre Cone. Montalegre Cone? 
Well, that's an interesting marriage of words. In a way, the film is a full circle moment for Kazu, whose fascination with the legendary composer goes back to his teenage years in Japan. Leonard Bernstein was a big inspiration when I just started makeup. And I watched the documentary about him, and I was really inspired what message he sent out to the students to inspire them to be the best. He can be the first great American conductor. Fast forward to Maestro, in which Kazu had the task of designing five stages of prosthetics for Bradley Cooper, representing different phases of his character's aging. At that time, he just finished licorice pizza, and uh, his character needed to have some weight. He was quite big at that time, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Lenny had a more like a gaunt look, and so I took a life cast and a scan of Bradley, including body, because we had to change his body shape to photo as he aged. How long did this take in the makeup chair every day? Because I know he also wanted to work with a very small team to get that accomplished. So first stage, because of the facelift, it took longer than the second stage. It was like uh, two hours and a half. And the fifth stage was about, took about five hours. The hard work and long hours have paid off for the both of them. The film has received critical acclaim, earning nominations for seven BAFTAs and seven Oscars, including in the makeup and hair categories. And Kazu says he's overwhelmed by the recognition and beyond thankful for the opportunity. It's really meaningful because this movie was really like a passion project for both of us, for myself and Bradley. After 36 years, to make my dream come true. He, he brought me like a great gift. From Monocle Radio, I'm Laura Kramer. Thank you, Laura. And Maestro is on Netflix now. And that's all the time we have for today's edition of The Briefing. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwer and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing's back on Monday at the same time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend. Music.